You're about to listen to an original podcast concerning the early 2018 death of Charlottesville resident Molly Miller. The purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. It is not to be confused with a legal investigation. Opinions expressed are solely those of the participants. The following contains adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. So we're back with another episode, and we'll cut straight to the chase. Why another episode? Russ, do you want to take it from here? Well, it's pretty obvious to most of the people in Charlottesville, but our listeners not in Charlottesville or haven't seen anything on the web. I got a call on Mother's Day, and I usually don't get calls on Mother's Day because why would I? And um, <laughs> uh, when the listeners to the podcast said, have you heard about Ed Thomas? Or Eddie Thomas. It was one of the two. And That's I funny. go, he what happened? And he Ed. Goes, yeah, he yeah. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, um, he hung himself last night. And I go, what? And we had already recorded the final episode. We had. We thought we were really putting this to bed finally. And um, it was ready to go up and everything. And I immediately contacted you and told you what happened and that we had to, we we're going to have to go in and do something now. Mm-hmm. Most of the people that I, I've interacted with that know Edward Thomas have told me stuff that they just did not like the guy. They found him creepy. He wasn't likable, which is a little different than what a lot of other people have said. Well, it depends on what people. I it mean, does. one really thing does. that's been very fascinating to me is to see the responses on social media. And I noticed that a lot of the comments that were praising him, praising his artwork, and just saying he was a very phenomenal person were from people that had not been in contact with him for quite a few years, if not decades. And or were people who said, yes, I met him like maybe 15 years ago. I knew him in passing. But the people that he really interacted with in the past decade or so really had very little to nothing to say about him. He was somebody that, for lack of a better word, he would become somebody's best friend for a while, put them up on a pedestal. And when there was some sort of infraction, whether it was real or imagined, and in my experiences, uh, it was mostly imagined, the infractions that people committed against him, he had no use for them. He discarded them, and that was the end of it. Yeah. Before I had become the producer, I was a listener. And I remember, you know, I listened to the Edward Story episode, and mm-hmm. you know, you take it for what it is, kind of in the first through. And then I remember I listened to it again, and I sent a text to you, and I go, "This guy's lying." Yeah, he, he has did. To, I could tell by the way he was talking that he was a liar. Mm-hmm. And so have other people. They've they yeah. come out now and said that this guy was a liar. My cousin, who's just listening, Emiliano, he sent me a text, and he goes, "Hey, I'd watch out for this Edward Thomas guy. The guy's got three permanent restraining orders on him." He did. And his reason for that was a lie too. He, he said that was the reason uh, he did that so it would draw more attention to the case. Talk about cutting your nose off to spite your face. That's that's going over the top for trying to bring attention to a case. Uh, I never understood his reasoning behind that, and. You know, Ross, you and I were very criticized. Why did we focus so much on Edward? Why, why, why? Well, he really did become so intertwined with this case. He was the only suspect. Uh, He was the only person that I'm aware of that was ever questioned when Molly Miller disappeared. He did keep the local public, or at least some parts of the Charlottesville public, aware of this by his endless flyering. You want to take it from there, what I mean about that, the endless flyering? Well, it just seemed that he really, really, really wanted to 
talk about conspiracies, and he 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 flyered the hell out of the city. He did. <laughs> yeah. I was with him one evening uh, at Staples. I was interviewing him, and while he was flyering, and he spent I think forty dollars uh, just that evening on these flyers. He stuck them up everywhere. Uh, he stuck to the. Um, he stuck to the area near the McGuffey Art Museum in Charlottesville, and it was just amazing. He used uh, he used a heavy-duty stapler gun, and I did remember that I asked him and said, you know, are you supposed to be hanging them there? And he didn't care, and that was very characteristic of Edward. He did things, and he did not care. He didn't really have much boundaries, it sounds like to me. Uh, no, he didn't. Not um, just from you, but from other people. N- no, he didn't, and I, again, when it was just me, who was who was producing this and uh, and writing this? I was so heavily criticized for the interview. I was told by some, "You just let him talk. You didn't really question mm-hmm. him." And as I explained, I was just trying to get him to speak because if uh, I was trying to get him to speak, and I was trying to get the listeners to really determine what they believed, what they did not believe. Because if you go back and listen to that, it's an, Edward really contradicts himself even in that interview. One of the conditions for that interview is that I told him I was not doing uh, PR. I said, you have got to be truthful with me, Edward. And we have to discuss those parties and this uh, mysterious fellow who was uh, identified by numerous people as a pimp who trafficked uh, young girls and who it was very well established that Molly did know this man. She had a relationship with him uh, of, of some sort. At the, at the very least, he was somebody who did interact with her and who was around her for a lot of her, uh, a, a lot of time in real life. And he said, okay, I, I okay, I will. I was very surprised. He, he did think about it for a day or so and said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And his reasoning for that was, well, you can't, n- nobody can do anything to me. I don't have to worry. I, I don't have to worry about a boss. I don't have a job. So therefore, I can pretty much do what I want. And that really embodied his philosophy in general. Well, you got to wonder about somebody who's inserting himself into this when everybody else involved is just enjoying the, the fact that the media is just staying quiet and letting it fall aside. The police aren't investigating it. It's all gone away. And he is just constantly going out there and talking about a conspiracy theory that the police are doing this as a cover-up. The Freemasons are involved, which is a, a nice throw Various in. Various other and individuals. I mean, these were private citizens who, I mean, not only was it who had absolutely no motive that anyone could find, but these people were even even were were not even uh, were not even in Charlottesville, or in some cases, not even in Virginia when Molly Miller went uh, went missing. It was really you know fascinating how this man inserted himself in his story, and you know, since since he was you know again he was the only suspect that the police ever questioned. To the best of our knowledge, he was the only person they ever questioned the entire time that Molly Miller disappeared. It really was important to look into him and to find out, you know, what his relationship was with her. And that was very frustrating because Edward, after interviewing him for hundreds of hours, and that's no exaggeration, he contradicted himself nonstop. Sometimes during the same interview, he would contradict himself. Well, one great lie that you can tell us about is what was his relationship with Molly really like? We all know that it was just a sexual relationship. There wasn't yeah. boyfriend and girlfriend, but it, no. it goes back. What was his opinion of Molly? Oh, boy. Um, he, well, first off, you know, to answer what that relationship was, and we can speak freely now, which in our previous episodes, we kind we just of couldn't we, do that. We, we couldn't yeah. do that. We, a lot of it was, you know, read between the lines. I don't know how many people picked up on this or, 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 um, or, 
or could infer what we were trying to say or hint at. But basically, it was very much a sex worker client relationship between them with uh, Miller being the sex worker and Thomas being the client or or sugar or sugar daddy but what he really thought of her he told me once that this was really towards the end of the interviews that he was becoming very frustrated with her he fancied himself to be quite an intellectual he said that he had lent her books and in his own words he said you know, these were not these were not intellectual tomes. They were books that were written on an eighth grade level. And I found out she never even opened them up. She never even cracked the covers on them. And he said he got very upset and said it was very difficult for him to think of him having any sort of long term relationship with somebody. He said, frankly, that uh, there was one, that she was he was looking at her. In, in his house, and she was in direct sunlight, and he realized, oh, she was getting older, which, you know, sounds a bit ridiculous. She was all of 31 years old when she when she died, but he said that he realized in 10 years he was not going to be attracted to her, and his exact words were, an exact quote, I wrote it down. He said, I don't care how great the sex is, at some point you have to stop fucking and, having, and have a conversation with somebody. And he said that she definitely was not somebody he could have a conversation with. He actually got quite angry because later on I left and he texted me and said, oh, I didn't mean any of that. Don't don't say anything about that. But I felt that that was really I thought that was probably one of the times he was he was being honest with me during all the all the hours that I interviewed him. Well, one thing about this sex trafficking ring is that she was well past being aged out. Yes, she was. Thrown to the hounds, so to speak. Yes, she was. My understanding is is that um, 19 was considered to be over the hill. I'm not making that up. That was actually what a source claimed. And uh, she was 31. And Edward Thomas, too, did... Uh, he liked them young. He That was... He even said that, you know, he liked much younger women. But in his case, it was even rumored he liked them so young that these were not even legally women. Well, another thing about that is how did she stay in after such a long time and talking to people who work with sex trafficking, been involved with sex trafficking, been told how to spot sex trafficking and everything. They have to do more extreme stuff. Exactly, and that that would explain that that would explain you know the activity that was going on in some of the pictures that that we obtained. And none of that activity was safe, sane, and consensual. It certainly wasn't consensual, and it wasn't safe. They didn't know what they were doing with this BDSM play or anything like that, and therefore it was not sane. So we're not lumping them in with that community at all. No, but. She was asked, well, made to do some pretty extreme stuff, made some vacations. Just for- supposedly, supposedly it was said that, you know, it was rumored that she had started doing sex work shortly after she left the University of Virginia and she had she had clientele. It was, you know, this this did appear to be corroborated. It appeared to be corroborated by um, even uh, pictures showing her in various locations. And in each of these pictures, it appeared that she had traveled alone. And also, Edward uh, Thomas did know quite a, quite a few sex workers, or uh, quite a few sex confirmed sex workers and rumored sex workers in the Charlottesville area. And we find out this goes back long before 2014. Oh, yes, yes. And... You know, again, getting back to the uh, the, the outpouring that I've seen uh, from various people, 
I find it very interesting because I understand that when somebody dies, there is a tendency to deify them or to only focus on the good things. But the truth remains, a few facts remains, when he had three permanent restraining orders against him at the time that he died, he also had at least that Russ and I could find three very credible allegations of sexual assault that occurred within the past decade. And lastly, the claims that he was an architect and historian were not true. He did graduate with a Bachelor of Science and a degree in um, studio art from uh, the University of Virginia, but he never worked as an architect. And I don't know where a historian came from, but he, you know, he maybe he fancied himself a historian, but I could find no evidence that he ever worked in any capacity, not even as an amateur historian. Well, what we do know is if you listen to Edward's story episode is he does come across as a fool. It comes across innocent, lost babe in the woods. And I immediately called him out. I was like, this guy's having sex parties at his house, doesn't know what's going on, doesn't care, doesn't take part in it because he wants to be the eccentric artist. The eccentric artist would be part of it. So, you know, that made no sense to me. But you also said that was one of his motives to be the fool. Yes, he was. Yeah, yes, it was. Uh, Edward Thomas, I will say this, uh, I, 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 will, I will say this because it, it's true, was, was phenomenally intelligent. I actually met one of his uh, former teachers from high school. The man came into town and Edward treated us all to dim sum. And I actually managed to do, do some interviewing at the at Chinese restaurant we went to. Quite interesting. Uh, it was a memorable visit, but he told me in the 40 years that he taught, Edward was by far the smartest student he ever taught. He won numerous awards for um, his abilities in Latin, but also in science. Originally, Edward claimed that he was going to major in the sciences. I think that originally he wanted to do marine biology, or that was something that he thought of. He had a national science award uh, at the high school level. He showed it to me. He kept that as his whole life. Well, that's probably why he majored in the architecture, because that's basically an engineering degree. Yeah, it is. And he did go for the Bachelor of Science, where the requirements are even much more um, closer to what one would find uh, for for an engineering degree. But he, uh, he did tell me, too, that he really did like I, Claudius. It was, he was it, quite a PBS fan, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was. He told me that as a child, he uh, he and his uh, his sibling were only allowed to watch PBS, and that he really liked I Claudius. For those that do not know, it was a series based on the book by Robert Graves, which is told by the viewpoint of the Emperor Claudius. And Claudius pretended to be a fool; he was not, and it saved his life because poisoning was very big amongst Roman emperors. But he did talk about that quite a bit and said that that was his role. That was there was a point where he. You notice he wasn't the fool anymore. His voice changed. Yes, and- yes. Um, it, it was really quite amazing to see that because a lot of times he spoke in this very high-pitched voice. I, I, I often called it the mouse voice because it was a bit sque- it was almost squeaky. But Edward's actual speaking voice was actually quite low, and it was somebody that was obviously quite intelligent and quite educated. He also could do a Southern voice of a very, very, almost like a caricature of a Southern accent, which would make sense considering he was uh, born and raised in Virginia. But well, what he he said basically, what he basically said was that uh, he could he could slip into different personas. That's what I meant to say. He he could he could do things with his body language and with his voice where he became completely different. 
And he basically told you, I don't need you anymore. Yes, he did. He told me that he did not need me anymore, that I had served my purpose. I refused to make him the hero of this of the story. And he resented the fact that I was calling him out on contradictions. I, I mean, as well, as you can understand, Ross, as a former uh, crime reporter, he had um, I, I had so many um, hours of interviews. I had pages and pages of notes. And when I'm going back and looking at them, I'm noticing he's contradicting himself left, right, and center. And, you know, tying back to Molly Miller, on one hand, he's saying that she's his best friend, that he actually said, we were the same person. That is a direct quote, that they were twin souls, they were the same person. And yet he's saying he knew pretty much nothing about her as far as he didn't even know where she grew up at. He didn't even know that she had attended UVA um, until a few years before she died when she posted a YouTube video. Well, and we we have known that he played a very significant role in trafficking these girls, and these parties were his party. Also involved in other things, like I always say, you got your hands on one thing, you got them in others, and if you got your hand in sex trafficking, that's quite a, a bowl to have your hand in. Well, well, let's discuss that since you brought it up. I mean, he uh, was, you know, he painted himself, uh, no pun intended, as being this great artist who lived off his art. That actually was not true. Edward's, well, Edward dealt drugs. That's not hearsay. He told me that. I have him on record, and I actually saw a drug transaction go down. That was something I'll never forget. And like I told you, look, we're not talking weed here because... You're not going to be able to pay from your mortgage for your house in uh, in Charlottesville by nickel and diming it like that. He was moving some good stuff. Yeah, more of the harder stuff. Yeah, I didn't see him dealing the hard stuff. What happened was, I mean, he was very blatant about being a drug dealer. Just to give you a quick summary, we had arranged a time for me to interview him, and uh, it was in the morning, uh, as I recall, or or perhaps early afternoon. And he gave me the key, the code to his gate. Uh, his his house did not it was surrounded by a wall that he built. And there was a gate. You punched in a code. There was no locks on, on the doors of his house. Um, I let myself into the kitchen, which was pretty much par for the course. And there was a man there. And uh, we just got into a conversation. And uh, he was very pleasant. But I remember thinking, how do you know Edward? Uh, and, and I did ask him that at one point. I said, are you a friend? He said, well, you could kind of say that. And Edward came downstairs. And he did a drug transaction right in front of me. I was really shocked. I was never, you know, witnessed one of these before. And I was actually quite upset with Edward. Uh, after the man left, I said, never do that in front of me again. And I pointed out to him that had he been busted, I would have had to have testified against him because you can only plead the fifth if you actually happen to be, def- if it's about incriminating yourself. And, well, and furthermore, I, w- I wasn't going to lie for anybody. I mean, it was, it, it was a very uncomfortable for me to witness this. But that was one thing, too, about Edward. He did not care about other people's comfort. He really had no boundaries, as you once uh, pointed out. Yeah, no, he, he seemed to be, have no boundaries. And that's going back to some of the stuff he did with Molly. But why don't you tell us a little bit or everything about the interior, the exterior, and the property that he owned? Oh, boy. I don't even because know. Because this really leads me to believe that this guy was paranoid or trying to keep himself safe from any type of outside activity? Well, I'll be perfectly blunt. Uh, when people did ask me, and, and this does tie in with what you, which, what you just asked, and said, are you surprised that he died and that the cause is allegedly suicide? And my uh, answer was no. Uh, Edward was very forthcoming about the fact that both a, that his father had committed suicide, and he even said this in an interview for a local publication. And he also shared that he struggled with uh, bipolar disorder. 
and that his bipolar disorder was not very well managed because in addition to the medication he took for bipolar disorder and anxiety, he also um, took illegal drugs and alcohol. Again, this is not an allegation. This is a fact. And I observed uh, I observed him taking um and the medications amount, you take for yeah, co- bipolar copious amount of, of of alcohol along with his uh, along with his uh, his bipolar medic and anti-anxiety medication. I was a little freaked out by the anti-anxiety medication because um the particular one that he took, I knew you were not supposed to mix that with alcohol. Well, not only that, but the 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 mood stabilizers he was supposedly taking for his bipolar that has to be monitored on a regular basis. You just don't take it. He he spoke very openly about uh, bipolar disorder well, and, and that he, I think his first episode occurred when he was 19. He struggled with mental illness for most of his life. But the house itself, you know, and again, it was something that was so hard to know when he was telling the truth. He claimed that he had bought the house from an elderly black woman. I looked at the property records and no, not only did he not buy it from an elderly black woman, but again, this being a very bizarre uh, coincidence, I went to my 20-year college reunion union and I actually ran into a former classmate who told me he had lived in Charlottesville and had flipped this house. He described the house and it was Edward's house. And the and the I, I was just utterly in shock. I think he flipped it with a friend, but the but the fact of the matter is is because I said to him, Do you remember the person you sold it to? Was he an artist? He said, I don't remember, but he was he was white and he was about, you know, our age. So yeah, I mean but um and no, this man was not an elderly black woman. But but the interesting thing is I found out that the house when Edward bought it had been flipped, it was turnkey ready. He had torn out the um the, the kitchen and by, by tearing tearing that out, I mean he tore out the stove, he tore out the microwave, tore out the um the refrigerator and replaced it with what he thought was very cool vintage stuff. One thing that was very worrisome is that he put in a gas stove and did not have the uh, city come and inspect that. He, he ran his own gas line. I think also, too, he tore out the HVAC system and the house was n- not that I have any room to criticize. I'm not a contractor myself, but the house did not appear to follow any sort of safety measures or, or any sort of general contracting. I mean, yeah, at one it, point, bits of the ceiling were, were, were caving in. I mean, I remember one time we, I think it was in the, I think it was in the, the living room. He always called it the library, but actually it, it was a living room. And I remember that there was bits of um, plaster falling down because uh, the ceiling was starting to crumble. Now, you also said that there was a camera system and even booby traps outside? Oh, yes, the camera that, system. That, that um, red flagged me big he, time. <laughs> he, he had hidden cameras throughout that house. There was one in the library. There was one in that infamous wine cellar. I know that because he showed them to me. It was uh, He kept them upstairs in a spare bedroom. And uh, that it was interesting because there were these brand new computer monitors in this house that was falling to bits. And I said, what do you need that for? And he said, oh, they're, they're cameras. I need that for security. And he also had one outside the house, outside, outside that, that wall that was around his house. But anyway, he, um, yeah, he had those cameras on. And I asked what he did with the video footage. And again, some days he said, oh, I erase all of it. It erases automatically. Then he said he kept it. I did ask him, too. I said, did you have your cameras on during any of those infamous parties? And he said, yes. And I said, what did you do with it? And again, 
I had two different answers. Well, there's, there's I, I don't film know what out it there. Was. <laughs> yeah, yes, and I don't think any there. of these people realized that they were being filmed, which in the state of Virginia is actually legal. You can film some one person without their consent. I think you can't have audio and video. Right. But uh, at the same time, I, I did wonder if any of those party goers would have thought twice about going if they knew that they were being recorded. Because the one thing that was being sold, the one reason why I'm told that people showed up at that house is they were told no one will know about this. He's got this wall around around this house and you know you can only get through it with a key code you know a key punch but uh everything was being filmed and also uh, there were so many people who had the codes to his uh, gate that it really it really did not uh, create the safety they were looking for well also being with that oh, there, the there were traps, traps. In yeah. His yard. Yeah. He. Um, oh my gosh. This was. You know. And I, I did think that his paranoia was getting worse during the the course of our interviews. He had grown this bamboo, planted it, so you couldn't see the house. Now keep right. in mind, this house had a wall around it. For that, he had planted bamboo that was literally right next to the house, and he also started digging these holes and they, they were actual like holes that he that he dug he had these 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 stone steps that led to the house but there were also these uh, holes that were at least a foot deep at least and, and uh, he covered them up so you couldn't see them but inside and this was very ominous and sinister were sharpened bamboo spikes he literally took bamboo mm-hmm. chopped it down and used a knife to make these spikes it would have hurt somebody i i nearly i nearly twisted my ankle one time when i was leaving yeah, that's something that the Viet Cong would do. I mean, that was... I think that's where he got the inspiration yeah, from. Yeah. What was I going to say? Maybe he thought it was Charlie Sheen. I don't know. You know, I'm thinking of, what was that, Platoon? But, but it, it was, it was a, you know, it was, it was just all these signs that as this podcast was, was coming along, as I was interviewing him, there were so many signs that his uh, grip on reality was not was slowly becoming loosened, uh, that, that he was losing his grip on reality. Or maybe, he, as I speculated, he was into deeper things and he had to protect himself. He felt he had in the... Uh... I did wonder that, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I wondered that. He, he did the... say it was to protect himself. He said this was a security measure. And I well, said, yeah. well, you know, why not get one of those home security yeah, things? Yeah, why not call and... ADT? But, yeah. But um, to me, that also means that you're dealing harder drugs. Yeah, well, I do have him on tape where he said he did procure cocaine. In fact, he said that Molly (laughs) was, Molly was actually, he actually paid her to drop off cocaine to a client. That's right, she was used for a drop. Yeah, Yeah. she she was used for a drop because I said, oh my, so if Molly had been caught with the cocaine, she would have been charged with a felony. And he was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that, which uh, I think he he did think of that. that. He knew that all along, yeah. He did, Uh, but but getting back to Molly, um, so... Not only was he a client of hers, but it also appears that he was probably throwing her sex work, in which case he was acting as both a client and a pimp. Yeah, and that kind of leads us to even deeper stuff because this wine cellar keeps coming up. And tell us more about this wine cellar because there wasn't much wine being there and it had ulterior uses that were not safe, sane, and consensual. Oh, I I explained a little bit about that in... um in a previous episode. So Edward had these, it was a great aunt and uncle that lived in Darien, Connecticut, which is a very posh, um, it's it's a posh bedroom community. Most of the people that that live there work in New York City. And he did show me that. They did have a very elaborate wine cellar that he said that they had dug and, and built themselves. But unlike Edward's wine cellar, this one appeared to be quite large, but it did have a vaulted ceiling. And in the pictures I viewed of it, they actually had wine there. 
And Edward said that, you know, that was his inspiration. But then he later told me that he hated wine. He did not like wine. There were some very dusty bottles in there. And I said, if you don't like wine, where do they come from? And he said, oh, well, I said, I think maybe they were left over from the parties or maybe somebody gave those to me. But he said, I said, I hate wine because I thought, well, why would you have a wine cellar if you didn't like wine? But he was very proud of the fact that his wine cellar is, is where the BDSM part of these parties took place and that he um, had this very ominous looking metal hook that, that hung from the ceiling. And, you know, one thing to note about this wine cellar is, if I recall correctly, since he dug it himself, it was accessed through a door in the basement. And it was not where you would be looking for it because, you know, again, it was an original plan of the house. He dug underneath of the foundation and he had these walls and they were starting to buckle in. And I mean, this wine cellar wasn't even wasn't even 15 years old at the time. But you had to walk through this, th- th- this pathway past these buckled walls into this very small room. It was a very claustrophobic feeling. And as I, uh, as, as Edward and I spoke about in that interview with him, I felt very claustrophobic. I did not like being in that room. I said, I want to see this infamous wine cellar. And he said, okay. And I think uh, that was, I think I was there two times and I, I really did not like it. There was, um, I think there was a single light bulb. He also talked a lot about belts. Which he did. is really interesting because... He did. Um, This was something that I don't think I ever shared uh, in any of the previous episodes. Edward shared with me that he had a collection of belts. He he fluctuated between 20 pounds. He went from, um, and this was his own words, he went went from being like slightly overweight to being, you know, what probably you would call obese. And as a result, he always needed belts because depending upon what size he was, sometimes he needed them to keep his, his pants and his shorts up. So um, he told me, too, that he bought most of his belts through Goodwill. They were all secondhand. And one thing that he staged, which looking back was probably one of the most bizarre things about this whole experience, and that's saying something, he invited a group of people over, including uh, myself, to see if it would be possible for Molly to have killed herself in the closet. So what he did is he brought out a rack and he said he okay, just happened to have it he just he just happened to have this rack yes and uh, he said you know we're going to pretend that this is a closet and he actually asked if i would volunteer to be the model which was you know looking back was a bit strange considering i am considerably smaller than molly miller was but still he actually did place a belt around my neck and said you know get into a kneeling position and there were a group of people around too edward actually took pictures of this which um I have. And looking back, there's the creepiest things ever. Yeah. I, I never, I, I just kept them as part of the archives, but I can't recall ever really looking, going back and looking at them because they're quite disturbing. And he did point out that um, he always had a collection of belts. I mean, it wasn't something he said once or twice, but I think he said about three times. Now, one thing is I did talk to someone that I know very well who runs EMS in like the Petersburg area, and he listens to the podcast. And he said, I don't care what anyone tells you. When someone says someone was hung by a belt, and we've mentioned this before, you go, that is absolutely not true. He was into this harder play, and he didn't know what he was doing. That's one thing that makes it safe, sane, and breaks a safe, sane, and consensual rule. Mm -hmm. Uh, He really didn't know what he was doing, but he really liked to play with belts. He had an obsession with hanging, which allegedly that's how he died. And, um, you know, it makes us wonder, you know, how, how was Molly found with a belt hanging in the closet? always wondered too he was extremely adamant he really did dog me about including say it was a man's belt say it was a man's belt i could find no evidence that it was a man's belt and as we have often discussed russ unless it's like something that's 
bejeweled or, you know, bedazzled. I'm thinking back to the early 2000s when rhinestones were all the rage. It's very difficult to look at most belts and tell a man's belt from a woman's belt, you know, but he was very adamant that it was a man's belt. He also was very adamant, too. Molly didn't have any belts. And I'm like, well, how would you know that? Right. But he was very adamant about these two things, that she she didn't have any belts except for he did say she had a Patagonia belt, and it wasn't that belt. It, it was it was a man's belt. And to the best of my knowledge, it was never released to the public as to what sort of belt was used. And, 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 and not even people who investigated this case, legitimate journalists were able to know what sort of belt was used. Well, not only that, but if you go back and listen to the Edward's story episode, he does go off about how, you know, hanging from a belt is not possible and talked about how the rope has to be because of the roundness of the rope. It will get you instantly, but a belt would take forever and all this other. It's interesting how he would just in hindsight going back and listening to that. Why was he so obsessed with that the belt didn't kill her? He, it you makes know, you wonder. I, it does well, make you wonder a lot of things. And, and, you know, that, that, was the, that was the whole thing that, that drew us to this, Russ, was all of these unanswered questions. And it's interesting, too, because I, I'm always surprised when people who don't know us listen to this podcast. I mean, it is interesting because I never expected to be that much interest in, in this. But there were people, apparently, that listened to it, people who've never even set foot in Charlottesville that thought, wow, this is a really weird story. You know, what happened? Why was why was this death not investigated. And that's what drew us to the questions. And again, why was this not investigated? Or at the very least, Edward was just somebody who had so many, there were so many things about him that really should have warranted a further investigation, you know, such as his relationship to this woman. Uh, What did he know or not know? Just from, just from, from the two of us, we've always asked, his obsession with this case why did he insert himself into it right and that's what he did in some ways it became more about him than it did about her in a lot of ways it did yeah it did he was not a good guy i'll tell you that right now and a lot of people saying the world's a better place a safer place right now that's a really cruel thing to say but a lot of people saying it's a safer place right now that he's gone and that's people in town by the way okay there's people around town have said that I don't know, is there anything else about Edward that you experienced or that he came across to you like? He was um, somebody who I think ultimately regretted talking about Molly Miller because he did have this, what I called this hero complex. He talked about how he was like saving and helping these various young women, all of whom that that he mentioned, all of whom had, had, had actually been sex workers, but he saw himself very much as like a hero. So there was one way of looking at that. Okay, he, or, or he wanted attention and he had a hero complex. But another way of looking at this was, this was somebody who perhaps felt a lot of guilt. Maybe- I don't I, think he felt any guilt. I well, I, not, not guilt, but I think he felt. Re- not, not, okay, I, I would agree with you. I don't, I don't think, think guilt is something that Edward Thomas would ever feel. I don't think it was either. I, he did. He did regret working on this podcast. He did. He, he did regret. He lost control of it. Well, he lost control he, he of lost it. Lost control of his narrative. He lost control of his narrative, and he really thought that he was going to be presented as a hero. And he did not come across as a hero. He did say to me once that I destroyed his reputation, which was very laughable. Again, this man already had three restraining orders, was already known for throwing orgies at his house, and was already known to quite a few people as a drug dealer. 
It would have been really hard for me or anyone to really destroy this man's reputation. He did a very good job of destroying his own reputation way before he ever met me. But um, also a, a few of his, his friends, a couple of them outright say that the podcast uh, caused him to kill himself. No, that's not a, that's not true. And his issues were very well documented no. way before I ever even moved to Charlottesville or before either of us moved to Charlotte. We both moved to Charlottesville the same year. So way before we ever set foot in this town. It's true. Um, to kind of wrap things up here about Edward, we can tell you that he was a key operator of this sex ring. He trafficked. He certainly appeared to, yes. He did traffic. No, yeah. it's not that he appeared. We know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, people have told us, both girls who were involved in it and have gotten away, and everyone has told us. Uh, a lot of people have told us yes. that, that that's what he was doing. Yes. We know that he didn't have many boundaries. No. And he wanted to control the narrative. He wants to control everything, and he lost that. And... I speculate, and we can speculate all we want, but he got paranoid. I always talked about the Telltale Heart story yeah. with Edgar Allan Poe. He may have gotten really paranoid about that. He may have gotten really paranoid about something totally unrelated to. We know that he wasn't a good person. We know that he was running this sex trafficking ring. And we uh, know that Molly Miller was part of it. You know, Molly Miller was some part of it. He did not have the loving relationship with Molly Miller that he desperately wants people to think he had. And he did not tell the police by his own admission. He didn't tell the police all that he knew about this young woman when she was missing. And again, this was a woman he would claim later claim at various points was the love of his life. He was trying to do everything to make sure that Molly was found. Well, no, he didn't tell the police he didn't tell he didn't tell the police uh, the truth that's that's something that we can that we can say pretty definitively and i, I this wine cellar was not a wine cellar i'm tell you that right now i don't think it was we built people for that telling us, uh, well we have no, people we telling numerous, us yeah. that that's not what it was used for and I, it was used in a more sinister way outside the realms of safe sane and consensual you know well, one final thing about this whole wine cellar the local media, there was a blurb in the local media about his life and his death. And they, they, they got quite a, they got a number of things wrong. Again, he was referred to as both a historian and an architect, which no, he, he was not. But um, they did mention the wine cell, which was a very strange thing. Because right. I'm thinking, he, well, take it with a grain of salt because it was Edward speaking. At one point, he talked about filling in that wine cellar that he did not. He, he wanted to destroy it. And uh, I said, well, aren't you going to have a problem? Because if you destroy that, I think your house would collapse because it was, you know, because he dug under the foundation. But he did want to destroy it. He thought of ways to to destroy it. At one point, he thought he wondered how much, you know, filling it up with dirt from floor to ceiling, which would have been quite quite a project. But he did want to destroy it or um, or so he claimed. Okay, so we know this about Edward Thomas. We now are telling you about this. Anyone out there that has had an interaction with Edward Thomas and has something to say, what's the email again? Oh, it's missingmollypodcast at gmail.com. Right, and people also I know who get in touch with me and get in touch with you. We, again, we thought we had this thing wrapped up and we're just going to go away and bam, this happened and... We'll probably be back. Well, it really depends on what you mean by by being by, by wrapping up. I mean, I think there's always you know going to be questions about Molly Miller's death because there's always at least I'm going to always wonder you know what what actually happened to this young woman? What role, if any, did these people that she was around play in her death? Or why was her death initially just uh, handled the way that it was? These are all legitimate questions. But as far as uh, Edward's death, people have asked me, do you think he was murdered? Do you? No, I think this was, I think this was a very clear-cut case of suicide.
Yeah, and many people have asked us to continue. Yes, many people have asked us to continue because they are very intrigued by, um, you know, what his role was in, in Molly's in, in Molly's life and also in her death. So that's pretty much our update then. Edward Thomas has committed suicide. We're able to tell you a lot about Edward. And again, thank you uh, to our listeners and uh, thank you for your feedback, including, you know, criticism. It's always very helpful for us. And, yeah. you know, thank you for all of you who have stuck through uh, with on this very long, very strange journey. Yeah, and I want to thank a couple uh, podcasts that have helped us. Ivy League Murders, mm-hmm. absolutely great to us. They're mm-hmm. doing a really good podcast up there. They're actually selling merch now. And they had a really cool guest on. <laughs> yeah, tell tell who their guest was. I they had was Joe really Pistone. I had, and I was like, how did you get Joe Pistone? Tell, you tell, you, tell, you tell don't know who people, Joe Pistone yeah. was? Forget about it. <laughs> he was Donnie Brasco, the real life Donnie Brasco. And they had him on the show. And uh, they also have someone else on there that you should listen to. That's Ivy League Murders. I also want to thank Sticky Beaks. They're doing a very similar type story that was in the past that's going on up there in Connecticut. They've been very helpful. And also our girls at the roster, which is really interesting that we've mentioned the roster because they're doing a lot of not suitable for work stuff on their show. It is absolutely funny. I mean, I, I literally lose it listening to what the escapades that these girls get into. But it's really it's different because it's safe, sane and consensual what they're doing. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what's going on in the, in these things. So, you know, hey, I told you I wasn't a prude. I, I just want to say again, for the record, I mean, Russ and I were accused of, well, just about everything except for the uh, kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. But I'm sure that's going to happen, you know, eventually. But this was never about trying to trash uh, anybody living or dead. This was never about trying to you know, dictate sexual mores. As I've always said, I don't care what consenting adults do. There was I, no consent. There was, yeah, I, I, I was, think... You're going to do this because you owe me this. Yeah, I, I think I'm of the opinion that I think sex work should be legalized. I think sex workers should be treated with respect. But I am against anything that involves people that are underage because children cannot consent. That is just a given. And I'm also against people being coerced. And I'm I'm also against um, trafficking taking place. I think there's a very big difference between people getting together and exploring uh, different sexual modalities and a huge difference between people being trafficked and people with uh, suspected and actual mental illness right. being taken advantage of and, and that's exploited. What they, they looked for the girl that was mentally ill or on drugs, uh, yeah, uh, I was never told- had a belonging in that is a common pattern with about every sex trafficking story that I've heard. I was told by somebody who was amongst around that group who had actually, you know, done sex work themselves, saying that this, the people that were used, rather, exploited by these individuals, they were people that did not have a strong family support system. And many cases, there was no safety net around them. So let's end for now and see what sure. happens. Okay, thanks again, Ross. And thank you again to all the listeners. Bye. Thank you for listening to Missing Molly, an original podcast concerning the early 2018 death of Charlottesville resident Molly Miller. Opinions expressed have been solely those of the participants. Missing Molly was written and produced by Kimberly Lowe, with engineering and editing from Mike Friend. Original artwork from Natalie Jacobson. Music composed and performed by Sam Whedon. Digital assistance is from John Taylor. With special thanks to Todd Ely, Lori Goodbody, Stephanie Bottoms, Josh Bontrager, Tina Hicks, 
Courtney Stewart, Lloyd Snook, and Edward Thomas. For more information, you can contact missingmollypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>